80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Big Wig Media, part of the Evergreen Podcast family. You can find this and other fascinating podcasts from our nation's capital at bigwigpodcast.com. To be effective in D.C., you have to have strong relationships. It doesn't matter the policy area. It really just comes back to relationships. And so I actually got quite a few bills passed into law. Um, interestingly enough, actually, one of them landed on Stephen Colbert's show there at the end. Uh, no Social Security for Nazis. Not a surprise. Strong bipartisan support. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. You know, for centuries, Old Town Alexandria has been a hub of activity. It's based around a very successful port. For many of the more recent decades, it's become a pretty fun place to hang out. I mean, it was very quaint when we first moved to town. You'd walk the brick sidewalks. You might catch a, a great meal at a restaurant or two. And then there was always some kind of unique shop to step in. But in most recent years, the city of Alexandria has doubled down on that experience. They have turned Old Town into a real destination spot for locals and tourists alike. For instance, at the start of the pandemic, they turned the lower blocks of King Street into a pedestrian mall. No cars at all. It's tables and chairs out in the street. It was so much fun and so successful that they had the foresight to make it permanent at the end of the pandemic. And along the same vein, there's about a 10-block strip that runs along the Potomac River in Old Town, which on the southern end was, used to be just an old warehouse district. Kind of run down. You really didn't go down there much unless you were just driving through or riding your bike. But now, there are brand new residential developments. There are three parks. As you work your way north, you come across new hotels, restaurants right on the water, and today, we're on the northern end of that in Waterfront Park in Old Town at a place called Blackwall Hitch. Now, Blackwall's been around 10 years or so, but you walk in and you feel like it's this Coastal Carolina vibe going on. It's a lot of windows. It's right on the docks, looking out on the river. It is next door to the Torpedo Factory art galleries. People are walking around pretty much any day, any time of the day, and this is one of the reasons that they come here. It's a great restaurant with locally sourced food. They've got wonderful specials that rotate regularly. In fact, Henry, the manager, said if you're interested in coming here for their Mother's Day brunch, better luck next year. They've been sold out for weeks. But on a regular weekly basis, not only do they have live music on Friday, Saturdays, and during Sunday brunch, but they've got specials each night, like Tuesdays, $15 fish and chip night, Thursday. 50% off fresh oysters, 
a pasta night, wine 50% off, you name it, there are many reasons to come to Blackwall Hitch. And I'm joined here today by Amy Short, yet another LBJ alum I've dragged into this conversation because she's off on a fabulous professional career track, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. But Amy, welcome to 80 Proof Politics. It's great to see you. Thanks, Phil. Great to be here, and what a beautiful location on a day like today. It is gorgeous today. This is one of those pre-summer days. The sun is out, barely see a cloud, and it's just absolutely wonderful to be here. So Amy is the head of North American Government Affairs and Policy for a company by the name of Onfido. So I'm going to start with that, Amy. Tell us what is Onfido, what is the niche? So Amfido is a digital identity verification company. Simply put, we specialize in being able to tell are you who you say you are when you're on the internet. Um, This is something that has become a lot more important in recent years. I think a lot of Washington has been paying attention to digital identity and identity fraud lately when talking about pandemic unemployment benefits and the fraud that happened during COVID. You know, it's that sort of technology. Is that document genuine? So taking a a photo of your driver's license or your passport and having our technology scan it to say, is that document genuine? And then taking a selfie and saying, is that person the person that is actually on that document? And then having our customers be able to be comfortable that the person is who they say they are so that they can open an account, rent a car, or some other transaction that's likely pretty high value and you want to make sure it's not a fraudster. So it sounds like it's both commercial and government use. It can be. For for Amfido, we are specialized in the commercial uses, but the use cases are, you know, just increased by the day. Well, it's, so if you're focused on the commercial side, why does Amfido have a D.C. presence? Absolutely. You know, we're a little bit unique here. So Amfido is a 10-year-old company. We're very much in the startup scale-up mode, and so it's not really common around D.C. to find yeah. a D.C. office for a company like this. But for us, we know that a vast majority of our clients are highly regulated entities, so they care a lot about what's going on in Washington, and it's really important to us for product market fit to make sure that we understand it too. And when we're thinking about policy at Onfido, we're thinking about it in three ways. One, we need to understand the external world around us. We need to use that for two to inform the strategic direction of the company. So I spend a lot of my time talking with internal stakeholders about what's going on in Washington and why that matters, the so what test, if you will. And then finally, we need to influence the strategic direction within Washington to make sure that we're flattening the road ahead. That's really important for us that we want to make sure when there is legislation in our space that it works in a direction that works for Amfido, and it's a business model that we can move forward with. So have you been playing defense when it comes to policy because of that, or are you just strictly promoting the better, brighter future? So I think it's a lot, it's a little bit of both, but primarily it's educational for us, as there's not a lot of legislation in the identity space, but we care a lot about things like data privacy, the conversation that's happening in Washington around AI, facial recognition technology, how that's used, what's appropriate, what's not. Those things really matter to Onfido. And then we're watching things like the conversation that happened recently around login.gov and the agency's um, lack of adherence to identity proofing standards and what that means for the industry at large. And so we need to pay attention to all of those things because they affect our environment. Okay, now you've hit home because I've just renewed the passport. 
had to go through login.gov. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's been a really interesting example here where you had a federal agency that was saying, we meet this standard, and it turns out they didn't. Mm. And that has huge implications for the security of the online services that the government was providing and is certainly really disappointing. Yeah, I imagine it would be. Now, you mentioned trade associations. Does that put you in with the tech nets of the world? Absolutely. So um, one of my jobs here, so I started on FIDO about a little under two years ago to help launch the policy office for Onfido. So we have two of us, and my uh, my boss, Matt Peake, handles global policy, and he's really focused on the EU and the UK, and I handle North America. And so my marching orders were to launch the DC office, and that included things like figuring out how do we register a lobby, what trade associations do we need to be a part of in town, do we need consultants, how do we use consultants, what are the policy issues. So really kind of starting from a blank sheet of paper. and trade associations were a big part of that and we are a really proud member of TechNet and uh, proud of the work that we've been able to do at TechNet to bring forward issues that matter to us. Yeah, I was just looking at a post that TechNet did listing their federal priorities and the one that really jumped out to me was data privacy. I assume that's a huge issue for you. It's a huge issue um, for a company like Onfido where we're The U.S. is a growth market for us, and so it's a place where we are very interested in expanding, but we also don't have a legal team of hundreds. Mm -hmm. And when you think about all these data privacy laws, we're now at nine in states across the country that have come on board. Navigating that patchwork is is a real challenge. TechNet has been a leader in not only engaging at the state level, but also telling the story about how it's going to cost businesses a trillion dollars over 10 years to comply with this patchwork. That's a real problem, and that's dollars that aren't going to innovation. It's going to lawyers. And while we're all fans of lawyers in Washington, <laughs> at the end of the day, that's not how you grow this economy. Right. And so it's really important to make sure that you have privacy laws that work for everyone that you can easily navigate. And it's very different than what we see in the EU, where you have GDPR with one framework that's easy to navigate versus in the U.S., where you're talking about different state privacy laws with biometrics laws, like in Illinois, on top of it. Yeah, I was reading that same TechNet publication. I was reading a data point they used that there's been like 178 data privacy bills introduced in 45 states just the past five years. There's a lack of federal policy. How do you navigate that? That's a big part of why we joined TechNet was to be able to keep on top of this. That One of the things that they really excel at is their state policy work. And so when I was thinking about what trade associations we would join, I looked for one that would really help me as basically a shop of one to be able to navigate all of these different state capitals because certainly I'm not going to be able to be in every state capital every day. Yeah. Uh, I've got to do a lot here from D.C. And so using a trade association that has eight um, regional executive directors, that has boots on the ground, that can really be our eyes and ears of what's happening in ca- capitals all around the country has been really important. Yeah, I would imagine as unique as it is for a startup to have a D.C. presence that you probably don't have a budget for consultants in every one of those states. No, absolutely not. Uh, currently, you know, given the economic environment, I don't have consultants at all. So I, I work with one trade association, and that's how we do this. Yeah. And so we're, we're a small but mighty shop that tries to punch above our weight after the best <laughs> we can. Um, and it requires you to be really scrappy, and it requires you to read a lot and stay on top of 
a lot, but then also because I'm an in-house lobbyist, really filtering that information to the so what, to feed back into the business of what's actionable that they need to worry about versus what I need to continue to monitor to make sure that we are keeping track of that from a strategic perspective. I would imagine too that you have a fair amount of communications with your customer base because they're on the front lines of dealing with identity fraud and trying to push the technology forward. How difficult is that, as dispersed as your customer base has to be, and you being a one-person shop in D.C.? Yeah, so I work really closely with our America sales leaders and try to be as helpful to them and our customers as I can. One of the things that we've done at Onfito in order to try to give more sight lines into what's going on in Washington is to launch a blog that we call On Policy, and that blog is published monthly, and it talks about these are the policy issues that you should be paying attention to, and it's written with an eye towards our customers, and it's something that our team makes sure to share with them. But I'm always giving feedback to our America's team to these are the things you ought to keep an eye on. And then I'm also working with our sales teams and our folks across the pond with, we have a lot of customers that also want to expand into the U.S. market. So talking to them about, okay, you want to come to the U.S., these are the things you should think about, whether it's data privacy or what we're talking about, AI, or how we see biometrics and the friction that Americans are or aren't comfortable with when it comes to identity proofing. Yeah. Okay, you brought up AI. Yeah. It's, it's the sexy dance partner right now. It is. How, what role does AI play in what Onfido does currently and maybe is thinking about doing down the road? We are an AI company at our core. Um, So our technology uses facial recognition technology, which is AI, to be able to tell, does that selfie match the driver's license? So AI is really important to us. And it's going to be a really interesting, I think, next 18 months here in Washington as Congress starts to grapple with AI. You know, we've seen the EU just today, I think, the AI Act was approved in committee. And so they've moved forward on the AI Act, and we've had a lot of conversations within Onfido about what the AI Act means. And I take those lessons and share those with TechNet and staffers on the Hill of these are the things that we're seeing and we're learning of what's going on in Brussels that we need to think about here in the U.S., but also just you know helping folks think about what are the important things that matter when talking about AI. I mentioned we use facial recognition technology. Mm-hmm. When people talk about facial recognition, the first thing they often ask about is bias. Oh, yeah. And rightly so, because at the end of the day, a model is only good as the data that it was trained on. Right. And so you need diverse data sets in order to be able to have good models that work for everyone. We take this really seriously at Onfido. We actually participated in a sandbox with the UK ICO uh, regulator back in, I believe it was uh, 2019. And so we've got a quite a bit of history in this space. We recently published a white paper on what we're doing to mitigate bias and how we're looking at it and thinking about it. Because as a company that relies on documents, we do have an ability to be able to sort people based on where they're from yeah. to be able to tell how is our model working. So that's not a perfect proxy for uh, racial categories, but it at least gets you part of the way there. Am I right in assuming that from a general public perspective of AI, right now there's not enough awareness of that back-end data set and people aren't really focused on trash in, trash out? 
Absolutely. Um, and I think when you know we started to talk about data privacy earlier, I think that's a great example of where these two policy areas are really going to overlap here in the coming months and years because, again, we have to have data sets we can train on if you want the models to work. But if we're going to delete all of this data and not have access, and people have the right to privacy and should have the right to privacy, you've got a bit of attention there. And yeah. so we're going to have to figure out how that works and is it that the government should release sets of data sets that we can train our models on. Okay, interesting, that might work, but then that also makes for interesting questions around competitive advantage. You know, there are some companies out there that scrape the internet. We don't add on Fido. That's not okay. what we do, um, and that's not how we train our models, but some companies do. But thinking about what that's, that landscape's gonna look like, because at the end of the day, that model for many companies is in fact their special sauce that they're bringing to the market. And so we don't want it to necessarily be the same for everyone yeah. because then where is my competitive differentiator? We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You raise an excellent point. Artificial intelligence is not new. We've been using it for years, right? In many different forms. But now that it's basically every day you see a story about it or a post every 30 minutes it seems like on chat gpt congress is getting ready to turn its attention to it do you think that congress has preconceived notions of what ai is just based on this general public perception absolutely i mean anyone that tells you that they don't have a preconceived notion about something that they aren't an expert in, it's probably not telling you the truth. Yeah. And so it's no surprise that Congress hasn't focused on AI before and that they've got some catching up to do. And that really puts the onus on the industry to come and work with the Congress in a proactive manner. And that's why we're excited to have a government affairs shop at Onfido to be able to talk about this is what we do, this is what good looks like, and these are the things you need to be thinking about. Because we know that we do, we're trying to do things the right way yeah. at Onfido, but we know that not everyone tries to do things the right way, and so it's important to be able to differentiate that and talk about it. How do you get heard over the cacophony of voices as an uh, upstart company, 10 years old, one person basically shop here in town, and maybe the help of two trade associations? How do you get Onfido on decision makers radar yeah. so I talked a little bit about being scrappy and that means working harder than everyone else because yeah. at the end of the day it's about continuing to not only are you picking your spots but being really strategic about picking those spots and getting out there we've spent a lot of time talking about 
pandemic unemployment fraud. Amfito, as I mentioned, does not do government work. Mm -hmm. So it's not an area that's our focus. However, it's a place where we can kind of step back and say, look, we're in the industry. These are things that you should be thinking about and serve as a resource. And so we've been able to have those conversations and be a little bit of the, the white hat safe space for staffers to ask some questions about technology so that they can talk to the companies that are in that space or think about how they want to define policy going forward. So I spend time reading IG reports and then I will focus (laughs) at longtime committee staffer. I love myself for the IG report, but that also means that I will take that IG report and go and say, hey, you know, I saw this. I'm concerned that you take this and you go a little down that path, this other thing's going to happen and you don't want that, we don't want that. Unintended consequences. Let's talk about it. And so really being proactive. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about with a startup, every dollar counts. You're always talking about ROI. You're trying to make sure that you're bringing value. But policy at its core is not something that's going to bring in a dollar into the door tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's a longer-term play. Mm -hmm. And so it's balancing that strategic work, but also at the same time helping the company build a brand. All right. Reading IG reports, you mentioned you have a blog and your trade association presence. What other types of tools, techniques are you using to get Unfido on the radar screen? LinkedIn's a big one ah, for yeah. me. So I, I've learned how to become a little bit of an, a LinkedIn influencer. Um, never thought that I would put those two <laughs> words together, but here we are. Um, so that's a great way to reach as our, as congressional our, uh, staff. As our mutual friend, Errol Yadlake, said a couple of weeks ago on podcasts, he said, how very DC of you to look up information on me on LinkedIn. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I know Errol well. We were at LBJ at the same time, and he's a really smart guy and a great one to have on this podcast but yeah i i tell interns and junior folks in dc all the time get on linkedin yeah start you're never going to know where people are going to go in their career this is a transient town where people are always moving around linkedin will be your best friend but you have to start early because it's no good to you if once you realize you need it if you've not been growing it it's kind of like gardening yeah that way yeah good so we've been using i've been using linkedin spending time of you know i've got quite the network of congressional staff. I spent 12 years on the Hill. And so I know a lot of people. So I leverage my own networks. I use the On Policy blog. We talk about on LinkedIn. We push forward with trade associations. You know, TechNet, they really focus on AI. They focus on cybersecurity. They're amazing on data privacy. But when I was looking at trade associations in town, nobody really did digital identity yeah. from a vendor perspective. Um, you know, the Better Identity Coalition, which Amfito was proud to help found uh, years ago, is a great voice of the digital identity ecosystem. But ultimately, it's really talking about the big picture strategic vision and very much from a relying party perspective. And ultimately, vendors do have a perspective that needs to come forward. And so TechNet, I was able to have a great conversation with them look, there's not a natural fit for us, but this is a policy area that's going to explode. And so how can we work together to build something? And so you mentioned their federal policy principles. I'm really proud that Amfito led the charge to get TechNet to create a new one. And so now digital identity is an area of focus for one of the two major IT trade associations in town. Fantastic. That's how you get hurt. You mentioned your time on the Hill, so let's do talk about your career path here. 
While you were at Virginia Tech or before you went to LBJ, had you spent time in Washington? So I, I love public service. I am a, um, I was a third generation public servant. My granddaddy worked for the patent office and then for oh. NASA. My dad worked for NASA. I, I knew I wanted to work in government, had worked in my local government as a high schooler, worked for the local planning department for a while. Okay. I actually was an urban planning major in college. And my second year, um, second summer interning for the planning department, I had a great mentor who was talking to me about her hobbies one day and how she restores old houses. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why, why do you do that? She says, well, you know, planning, it's all about 20, 30 year plans. Mm. And I just need to see something actually accomplished from work I put in. I thought that was very interesting. And yeah. then, of course, at 19 years old, thought that it was terrifying that I would never see something accomplished for 20 <laughs> sure. years. Yeah. So I, I went back to tech and I was like, okay, maybe I don't want to be an urban planner anymore, but I do really like government policy seems to be the space. And it was within my major as well, just a part of the major. And so I started focusing on policy, was able to intern in the Congressional Affairs Office for NASA, and then did an internship on the Hill um, the summer before my senior year oh. and caught the DC bug. Oh yeah, um, well. But also, I'm one of those really strategic planning type folks that I want to make sure I understand the direction I need to go and think about things three moves down the road. And so not a surprise, I grabbed one of those congressional yellow books when I was on the Hill yeah. and started thumbing through and looking at all the chiefs of staff on the Hill. Cause I was like, this is a pretty cool job. Mm -hmm. What did they do at mm -hmm. school that I need to know? So yep. I look at the list and I see MPP, MPP, lawyer, MPP, mm -hmm. lawyer and MPP, MPP, lawyer. Okay, I need to go to law school and or policy school. That's exactly how I ended up in law school. The exposure to chiefs of staff on Capitol Hill. Yeah. 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 So I went back to tech. I took the LSAT. I took the GRE and then said, okay, where am I going to go to school? And sat down with the head of the honors program at Tech, Jack Dudley, at the time, and he gave me some great advice, which was, you know, you want to work on Capitol Hill, you need to think about your, where are you going to be a constituent? Mm. You are Virginia true and true, through and through, because, you know, you're from Virginia, you went to a Virginia college, so you can walk into an office of a Virginia delegation and say, hey, I want to work for you. But if you want to be smart about it, you need a second delegation that you can hey, call. How about that? I was like, okay. And, and Jack was really well-placed. His daughter, um, Drennan, who's now actually a really dear friend, uh, was working in the South Carolina delegation at the time. So he was using her as an example. He said, so you should think about where you want to go. And so I looked at, I said, okay, I need to, I don't want to go that far. So let's look at the Southeast United States over to Texas. Let's look at Republican heavy states, because I'm, I'm a Republican. and all right, what else do I care about? Well, they need to have a good law school and a good policy school because I'm, I only want to go to good programs. And then I also thought, if you've been to Virginia Tech in the spring, winter, you'll know it's um, not always the warmest of places. <laughs> so I was cold. So I looked at the average temperature in February, used that as something to think about. And then I also, as a third generation Hokie, I am a avid college football fan. Okay, so I also looked at the postseason rankings of the college football teams and used that to figure out where I was gonna apply. So long story short, 
comes as no surprise that I ended up at the University of Texas at the LBJ <laughs> School in fall of 2005 no. when they make their amazing oh. national championship run with Vince Young. The last so. of the glory days. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, the LBJ School was a great place to learn, but it was also a great place to go with friends to a football game. Yeah, that's great. Good for you. So that means you got out of LBJ and, and started your professional career ahead of the 0809 financial crisis. I've talked to so many alumni of different programs who had to deal with that situation. But did you go straight to D.C.? Did you come back to D.C. right afterwards? And yeah, so part of what I, one of the reasons, aside from the football team and the average temperature in February that I picked LBJ was because LBJ has a reputation of being really good at the Presidential Management Fellows Program. Yes. And I knew about that program and wanted, as someone who loves public service, I wanted to go that route. And so I was fortunate enough that I did get selected as a PMF mm -hmm. and um, had, I guess I should back up a little, between your first and second year, as you know, Bill, LBJ requires you to do an internship. Right. And so my internship ended up being at the Bush White House. Oh, how about which that? Was an amazing experience. I worked for the National Economic Council and ended up working for Chuck Blahouse, who was Bush's social security advisor. Yeah. And at the end of the summer, he looked at me and said, are you writing a thesis? And he said, yeah, I think I'm going to. At that point, I was one of the first classes where the PR was optional. Okay. Um, and said, I think I'm gonna write it. I think I'm gonna write it on social security and women because I was just really struck about how the program rules really disadvantage two earner households. And he said, well, if you want, I'll be your advisor. You want to advise the President of the United States and me at the same time? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so Chuck became my thesis advisor. I wrote my thesis on Social Security, and so it comes as no surprise that I ended up getting picked up by the Social Security Administration, the Office of Retirement Policy, as a Presidential Management Fellow. Um, the dirty secret, though, about the Presidential Management Fellow Program is that um, they pay you to do a job that you don't actually do right. for two years because it's a rotational program. Right. So I started working, so I came straight to D.C. with a job at SSA and then worked for SSA for a little bit and then started my rotations. I did one within the agency in the disability program, mm -hmm. uh, really looking at the disability backlog and the agency's ch management challenges there and how could they use technology to overcome those. Uh, from there I went, I was able to connect with a LBJ alum who was in the Medicare branch at OMB and so went and checked out the Medicare branch, learned that Medicare probably wasn't the entitlement program I was as interested in as okay. Social Security. It's good to know that going yes. forward. Yeah. It was a great developmental opportunity there um, and really appreciated the opportunity to learn at OMB about the important role of that agency. And then from there, my last rotation was with the Committee on Ways and Means. It was supposed to be four months. Four months turned into six. Six months turned into 18. Oh, boy. The house flipped. Yeah. And 12 years later, I left uh, the Ways and Means Committee for Amfido. Uh, so that's very quick how I got to where I am. It is, but 12 years on the Hill is not that common. Now, maybe more so at the subcommittee or the committee, professional staff level. But that's phenomenal that you could make such a lengthy career out of that. When I left the committee, um, I was actually the longest tenured staffer on the committee. Is that right? Was. Now, granted, An Angela Ellard had left about a month before, and Angela had been there 25 years. I remember Angela. So there yeah. was quite the gap between the two of us, 
but I still left with that badge of honor. So certainly, I, I saw some statistics that folks typically don't stay on the Hill much more than five years, which is really a shame because you can oh, learn a lot um, yeah. by staying. It's a lot lower for personal staff in house offices. It's like two and a half years still. What did you do as a professional staff member for Social Security Subcommittee? Yeah, so in the Social Security Subcommittee is a small but mighty subcommittee. <laughs> uh, tends to be a theme for me in places I work. So with that subcommittee, at the time we had a staff director and two professional staff, so we basically split all things Social Security. A lot of times when I talk to folks and they're like, what, what is it that you did there? Because they think it's just solvency, right? Like the yeah. future of the program, are you going to get benefits? You're absolutely going to get benefits. Um, they may look a little different than they do today, but you're going to get them. But the Social Security Subcommittee deals with a lot more than that. I actually, I was an IT staffer. So one of the things that Sam Johnson, who was our subcommittee chair yeah. for a long time, great, guy. great American, you know, American hero and a, a true Texan, he really pushed that agency to modernize their technology, and I had a front row seat to that oversight work with the agency because, you know, they were still running COBOL code, and they mm. still do today, uh, which is not taught in schools. Mm -hmm. They had green screens in their 1,300 field offices. They had um, systems that were designed in a way that they had to fly two guys over from Eastern Europe because they were the only people that were able to do this one thing oh with their data center. And so overseeing the building of a, a third data center and decommissioning the original, all of these things were things we worked on. So I did a lot of IT work, worked on the disability program, the return to work around that, and then other pieces of the program, everything from making sure that people who are unable to manage their own benefits can have someone assist them to thinking about how is the agency funded and what do we do there with fraud yeah. what was the motivation to leave the subcommittee you know it's you never want to leave capital Hill. Yeah. you know and i often tell people that if you hit a point that you are aching to leave you left too late yeah and so for me it was one of those that you know mr johnson was no longer chair of the subcommittee and while I had worked for him for a long time. I, I really felt committed to helping him with his legacy there. And Mr. Reed was my subcommittee ranking member at the time and really a terrific member to work for as well. But this opportunity presented itself with Onfido. And a few years prior, when Mr. Johnson was still chair, we had worked on a bill that ended up being in the Senate banking bill. So not ways and means jurisdiction, for the overarching bill, but actually a ways and means jurisdiction piece that made its way into a Senate bill that had to do with synthetic identity fraud. Because basically what fraudsters were doing is they were getting, they were taking social security numbers that were unassigned. So they were just making up a number, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and putting it with, with a name and a date of birth and building a credit history mm -hmm. and taking advantage of how the credit bureau's files work to create these synthetic identities. And what it was doing was allowing these fraudsters, there's a really famous um, scam out of Rock Hill, South Carolina, where these fraudsters would build this synthetic identity record, they would then open up a credit card, run up a bunch of debt, and then disappear, because sure. the person never existed in the first place. Yeah. 
And so that was really my first um, introduction to the issues of digital identity and synthetic identity fraud. So I worked on the legislation there and just really got inspired because identity in this country, the core of it, is the SSN. Yeah. And so I, I was an identity staffer and so thought, you know, if there's ever an opportunity to work in that space, that's a place I want to be. And so Ambito found me and um, said, you know, we'd like you to launch a D.C. office for us. We want to be in Washington. We want to be at the table. They, you know, for being a U.K. headquartered company, they understood that in Washington you're either at the table or you're on the table. And so they wanted to be at the table. And so I had the opportunity to build a policy shop from scratch in Washington. But that's a big jump to go straight from the staff director role to being a one-person, basically, shop here in town. I admire that. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. It's really interesting. I think I've had the classic D.C. head of office experience of being remote from your headquarters, Mm -hmm. where a lot of folks in town are not co-located. And so having to build those relationships with key internal stakeholders has been really important for my success. So along that path, your lengthy time at the subcommittee, your years at Onfido, even your time at at, uh, SSA. By the way, congratulations on your appointment to the Social Security Advisory Board. I saw that recently. Thank you. That's quite an achievement. Um, Really quite an honor to be the House Republican appointee to the board. The board is unique in that its job is to advise the president, the Congress, and the Commissioner of Social Security on all things Social Security. So we have a really wide remit, and it's a bipartisan group. It's also interesting because it has four congressional appointees and, theoretically, three presidential appointees. But okay. what we've seen with the Senate, we've not had our Senate appointees confirmed. Uh, and so those spots have been vacant for quite a long time uh, at this point. And so we've got the, the chair is actually currently the Senate Dem appointee chairs the board when it normally would be a presidential appointee that chairs the board. So the four of us work together on a bipartisan basis and talk about challenges facing the agency and make recommendations on ways to make things better for the American people. It's it's a great way to continue to be involved in an area that I care a lot about. Good for you. That's fantastic. Okay, so back to my question. Throughout those years, what do you think has been your biggest challenge or obstacle to overcome as a public policy professional? Social security is a third rail of politics and it's not an easy space to navigate because you've got a lot of interests, you've got a lot of assumptions about people's interests and so really at its core to be effective in D.C. you have to have strong relationships doesn't matter the policy area it really just comes back to relationships and so the the challenges of figuring out how do republicans and democrats work together on Mm -hmm. social security is i actually got quite a few bills passed into law Um, interestingly enough actually one of them landed on stephen colbert's show Hmm. there at the end Uh, no social security for nazis not a surprise (laughs) strong bipartisan support but you know you you have to figure out that the way you overcome challenges 
is to have those relationships, to be able to build the bridges and have those frank conversations at a staff level. And I think that's one of those things, if you're reading the paper right now with the debt limit conversations mm. and what's happening at the principal conversations, but then you see that line and that line gives me hope, staff are meeting. Yeah. Because you know, at that point, then it's about those relationships and can they trust each other? Can they pass paper and figure out a way to move us forward? and help their principals through this. Because at the end of the day, that's the role of staff. Well, you you almost buried the lead there, Amy, because I always like to end by asking my guests what type of advice would they give someone charting a professional, someone charting a public policy profession here in town or making a big jump like you did from a subcommittee. But do you have anything else that you would recommend or something you've imparted as a mentor to others? Yeah, so, I mean, we've talked a little bit about LinkedIn and we've talked about relationships and that outworking others. But when I talk to young people about their careers and when we're thinking about jobs, I always tend to give the same piece of advice. And it's when you're thinking about whether or not you're going to make a move, you need to ask yourself three questions. And those questions are, number one, are you valued? You don't want to work somewhere where you're not valued. That's really important because you're not going to be effective if you're not valued. Second question is, are you empowered and are you supported? Those, they're related, and so I keep them as one question. You need to be able to do the job that they're asking of you. And if you're not empowered to do that job, that's not a good environment. That's a hard thing to identify going into a new job. What kind of tools would you give someone to recognize that coming into a brand new position? Yeah, so these are really questions that I counsel folks to think about when they're already in a job. Because you're right. I, I had a friend recently say to me, you know, no one loves you more than the day that you were hired. Yeah. So the, yeah. when Sad you take a job, you know, you absolutely have an expectation of being valued. You have an expectation of being empowered. But the other piece of that was supported. So do you have the resources available to be effective? And that's a question that absolutely you should be asking. Mm -hmm. And you need to be strategic about what is it that I'm going to need to have in this role? to be effective and if I'm not going to have those things then maybe think twice and my third one is always are you growing yeah. because I I'm intellectually curious I don't want to be bored at my job uh, I know you said Errol was recently on and I did listen to his episode and he said you know the worst his thing you could bear. ever be yeah. is bored in your job yeah. Errol and I have that in common that I always want to be growing and you asked why did I leave the social security subcommittee in part because I realized I had hit a point where I wasn't growing anymore. Mm, good, you could recognize that. You can recognize that. But really, when you're thinking about jobs, if one of those three things isn't true, maybe take a look around. If two of those three things aren't true, that is time to start to hit the panic button and mm. do things differently because you want to get out before all three of those things aren't true yeah. because that's when you're going to have a problem. Mm, great advice been in that situation myself. I can appreciate that. Well, Amy, it's been great having you on the podcast. I wish you all the best success with Onfido and wherever your North Star takes you. Uh, just remember, folks, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in D.C., whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Thanks for listening. Was fun. Absolutely. Thanks for asking.
is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.